So I have a question at the offset of today's episode. I'm curious, when it comes to how you look at the world, how you look at being a good person in the world around us, how do animals fit into that? I'm not just talking about in terms of whether or not you are you know, a vegetarian or a vegan. What I'm asking about more specifically is, do you extend the same level of empathy as you do to humans, to any animals, whether generally or a specific species or group of species or to any individual animals? And if you haven't, do you see any circumstances, any amount of evidence that might convince you to do otherwise? There's a lot of animals on Earth. Not exactly a controversial statement. But what is a lot more of a hotly debated topic is to what extent you should expand your moral circle, those beings that you extend empathy to. And there's degrees to it, of course. So the question I have at the heart of today's episode is what would you need to learn about animal psychology or neuroscience, philosophy, to hold on to your belief, if you do believe it, that animals don't deserve, in any case, human levels of empathy to be extended to them. And if you do, to what extent do you extend those, right? Do you feel a cow is 50%, you know, the amount of moral consideration is justified to be extended as, you know, compared to a friend of yours? Or do you feel like it's less than that? A lot of people feel like it's substantially less than that, if even comparable in any level, in any metric to begin with. The subject of today's interview is the Moral Weights Project, and more broadly, it is the ideas and thoughts of Bob Fisher, who is a senior researcher, research manager, that is, at Rethink Priorities, which is a major existential risk research center, and also he is the director of the Society for the Study of Ethics and Animals. He also recently wrote literally the handbook on animal ethics. In 2021, if there's anyone to dive in the questions that I pose at the offset of today's episode, it would be Bob. And the Moral Weights Project is as complex as it is beautiful when it comes to the potential implications it has for our moral landscapes. So if that's something you're curious about, today's episode is certainly for you. It was one of the most simultaneously challenging and I I think revolutionary conversations I've had in so long. So thank you so much to Bob and also Remember to like, rate, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Share it with a friend who you think might also be interested in the questions posed. Also, uh, importantly, if you have a couple bucks to spare, even three bucks, you know, the price of a cup of coffee, a cheap cup of coffee coffee nowadays, feel free to look up our Patreon. The link will be in the description below. Even a buck a month helps. And 100% of those proceeds get put right back into the show to make it better and improve, importantly, future conversations. Next Friday, we have another interview coming out. And once again, thank you all so much, and thank you to Bob. I'll see you guys next week. What are the forces, challenges, and ideas that define the 21st century? Conversations to understand the greatest figures and stories of today to create a better tomorrow. This is the 21st Stocks Podcast. The slogan would be something like, how many chickens is a child worth? Um, and, and then you can just think about how, how, how incredibly uncomfortable it gets shortly after that. Yeah. So how does that sort of relate to 
like the broader sort of uh, academic or intellectual purpose that you like got into thinking about morals and moral philosophy with? Has it always been a focus on animal welfare or did you get into moral philosophy initially for a, a different reason, for a different... Yeah, uh, it was purely accidental. So oh, really? um, I started off in epistemology. Uh, well, I did not know that. Yeah, my yeah, dissertation was in modal epistemology. And so I wrote about that for the first you know, couple of years of my career but then um you know when i got my job at texas state mm. uh, they needed people to teach ethics courses and i hadn't even taken an ethics course in graduate school so i was really jumping in blind and sort of like learning about stuff on the fly and uh i thought well you know i want to do applied stuff stuff that the students will be into so i was mm. really focused on those kinds of topics. And so, of course, you do stuff on, you know, whether or not it's immoral to eat animal products. Mm. And I just found myself with lots of questions. Uh, you know, I wanted to know what to think about these topics. I wanted to know how to handle the puzzle cases, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So I started doing some writing about that, and it just snowballed. And so I got away from epistemology pretty quickly. Um, you know, I published a few things, but... Uh, the animal work just sort of took over, and that's that became my entire career. And so I haven't mm. I haven't written epistemology in years. Um, that's a really organic way to get into yeah, a, a different line totally, or a different line. You know, thinking. people talk about you know research being driven by teaching. In my case, that was actually true, as opposed to just a thing you say in an interview. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I had no intention. I was never planning on doing this stuff. And then, yeah, now it's all I do. Were you a vegetarian or vegan before yes. getting in and teaching that? So yes. was that like a longer, uh, was that something you grew up with or was it like connected? Like, no, so that that happened not long after my wife and I got married. We were driving down the highway in Chicago and we went past a truck full of pigs and she started uh, to tear up thinking that they were, you know, not going on vacation. And I said, well, if this bothers you so much we should just try being vegetarians and um, I thought the upshot of that conversation was we were going to try to be vegetarians mm -hmm. and she thought the upshot of that conversation was we were going to do something much much more modest than that but once I had sort of got it in my head that that was what we were attempting to do it just took on a life of its own and I never yeah. went back yeah. that's super interesting to know like I yeah, who knew that the timing of that car ride passing that oh, yeah. specific truck, you know, would right. have such knock-on effects, right? Right. Because now you're doing uh, the moral weights project, right? Is it is it four parts? Is it? Correct me if I'm wrong. How many? You mean the number of publications? Of publications so far, it? yeah. Uh, we just put out number seven. Oh, number okay. And okay. there are two more in the forum series. Mm. Um, but then there's also a. A book length version that we're doing um, that will come out. Oxford's going to publish that. And then uh, there are also a bunch of sort of ancillary projects that are connected to the yeah, and, moral and weights. And may emerge at some point or other. Can you, can you break down the Moral Weights project? Sure. That's a little bit more clearly. So uh, the simple way of thinking about it is we want to do cost effectiveness analyses. Um, but that requires doing, making interspecies comparisons. Um, currently, many organizations that try to do this have what they call moral weights. Um, I don't like that language. 
because mm. uh, it doesn't require you to think about intrinsic valuations of animals. It can just be like, here's how much I care about chickens. Um, and I think that, <laughs> that's not the way we want to approach this problem. Uh, we want to think about like, well, what is the appropriate um, way or, you know, to value, what is the intrinsic value of these mm. animals and why? And then, you know, to what degree is it an empirically tractable problem mm. to suss out the features that are relevant to that value and then, you know, to come up with estimates. So that's what the Moral product, Weight Project does. It, it attempts to um, make the problem of assigning um, a value to an animal in a cost-effectiveness analysis an empirically tractable problem. Mm. And the way we do that is of course by making roughly 12 million assumptions um, and then and then trying to see well, like if you make these assumptions um, you know how does it how does it work out that is being facetious what we actually do is just make a, a handful of what we think are relatively modest assumptions with NEA mm. um, like hedonism and utilitarianism mm. and you know so that kind of thing and then say okay what well, what is the sort of least we can assume beyond that to get us to make a point where this is an empirically tractable problem. So it's trying to shave off all of the potential unknowns uh, to have the bare minimum number of claims you're making that are not really things that could be as empirically based, uh, like the, the ethical kind of claims. Uh, and then that can lead to clearer thinking about how much we should prioritize or value or weight uh, animal welfare in a cost-effectiveness model. Right. So given a relatively modest set of moral assumptions, mm. what methodology would take you from those assumptions mm -hmm. to an actual estimate of the value of the animal? Mm. What are some of the most interesting findings that you guys have, have come to so far? Well, Anything I think... Anything stuck out to you? So, I'm not sure when this will come out. It, I assume it will be after Monday. Um, but on Monday, we will actually publish all these results. So, they will be... Um, visible at that point so I will I will preview them now for you oh, but it, wonderful. Will, it will not actually be a preview for others I mean <laughs> the, the main the main upshot is that the moral landscape on our estimation given hedonism is just a lot flatter mm. than you might have thought yeah. so you know we end up proposing numbers where you know a, a pig's welfare range by which we mean the amount of positive and negative welfare the difference between the positive and negative welfare peaks that those animals can experience relative to humans. That given hedonism, you're only looking at, like, pig being able to realize half as much pleasure or pain mm. as um, as humans. And with chickens, it's about 0.33, and octopuses end up being really high. You know, all the vertebrates that we looked at, we looked at 11 different farm species. Mm. Um, we are focused on farm species species, of course, because we're interested in the numbers where we can have the largest impact. Um, the All the vertebrates end up being within an order of magnitude of humans, um, and the invertebrates. Uh, the lowest one is silkworms at um, two one-thousandths uh, <laughs> of a human. Which, you know, like... So on one level, on one level, the numbers are laughable. You're like, I'm not that, not that you were laughing at, but the point is that like on some level, this level of precision is ridiculous. Like, of course, we're not at a point in our knowledge where these numbers are the numbers we should trust. But at the same time, they have some value because they can serve to do this thing of saying, well, look, 
given the information we're able to collect at this point, yeah, right. This is the way. This is the methodology that allow us to make progress in these questions. Mm. And okay, if, if you apply that methodology, it turns out you don't get something like a silkworm is one billionth, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what's valuable. It's yeah, not. It's not 100%. so much. It's not so much the specific numbers. It's the fact that like you don't get these radical discountings yeah. of any animal we looked at. Which is, goes against, not goes against necessarily, because it's heavily, you know, common sense morality is heavily sure. dependent on cultural upbringing and all those things, yeah. right? Uh, and also uh, personality psychology estimates too are weirdly able to like help predict totally. that. It's fascinating. Uh, but nonetheless, like when the numbers are of a different, like, you know, are magnitude smaller or, or, or I guess most of the time have been magnitude smaller too, uh, compared to what people sort of uh, ne- like sense of it would be, right? The the amount that we estimate that we should you know morally consider a chicken is probably on average, uh, at least within American culture, uh, much lower than the actual number that you guys uh, have been thinking about. So that range makes a lot of sense, and that argument in favor of like why this work matters so much. Uh, also definitely is agreeable like I, it makes sense to me yeah. uh, what is like what has kind of been the response to folks outside of ea that you've talked with about this or moral weights project well there have been some interesting conversations i actually i was chatting with a belgian economist um about a month ago as you do you know everyone needs a belgian economist yeah right friend. but i but he's he's been working on something similar oh, i mean really? not the same sort of project that we we're doing but he's doing cost effectiveness analyses uh, and well, what he's actually trying to do is somewhat different. He's trying to estimate certain uh, appropriate tax burdens, but that oh, doesn't really matter. The point is that you know, so he we were we were looking at the numbers that he was using and the numbers that I was using, hmm. um, and the number that he was using for uh, cattle was the number that I was using for silkworms. Um, Whoa! So you know, you get a sense, and and he is very animal friendly, extremely animal friendly. And even um, still, his numbers. But even so still, much like, right? Yeah. Now, of course, like he's not doing an he's not empirically trying to assess. He's trying to think like, what's the highest number I could possibly give that people might take seriously, mm. right? So, I mean, and of course, in the non EA context, those numbers are going to need to be pretty low. Yeah. Like, if yeah. you're trying to calculate this way, but um, but I'm not beholden to the non EA world for the most part, so I don't have to worry about that. Um, as far as you know, w- what most p- folks are going to think about these numbers, you know, like to some, de- I mean, of course, one thing that's going to happen is people are going to misinterpret. Yeah. Where they're going to say like, oh, so you're saying, you know, uh, one human equals three chickens, and that's the that's that's the trade off that you're proposing. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the modern equivalent of. Uh, was it Diogenes right. uh, coming into a, I forget which, if it was Aristotle or Plato, who was like, you know, defining what a human is as a featherless bipedal like bird coming in with a plucked right. chicken throwing in, like, right. here's your human. Right. It's, yeah. it's going to be some weird modern version of that, right. some yeah. responses. Yeah. So. so I think, I think there are, you're going to get that sort of reaction to some yeah. degree. But I think, you know, ultimately what's going on here for most people is um, they just don't think about it being possible to make these kinds of trade-offs, right? They don't mm-hmm. think uh, that you can posit any kind of equivalence between, or any sort of trade-off rate between humans and non-humans. Mm-hmm. And I gave up that idea a long time ago. So I'm not really flinching at that point. I mean, I might be, I might look at my own numbers and think, 
wow, I'm uncomfortable. You know, like I don't, I don't know what I think these trade-off rates should be mm. um, in terms of what would match my own intuitions. But I also don't care very much about my intuitions. And I'm just trying to figure out like, well, what's the best way of approaching this really hard problem? Do you see a lot of progress within as insofar as there can be and of course we get in the weeds of like moral philosophy progress and like what that actually is or if it exists or whatever but do you see uh to loosely term use the term progress do you see moral like philosophical progress oftentimes being examples of people coming up against uh intuitions moral intuitions because there's kind of the sense of like we have this calibrated pro-social evolutionary like set behaviors and, and whatnot that oftentimes like do work right like we have moral decision making heuristics that like oftentimes aren't the worst thing ever right nukes seem like a bad idea to a lot of people you know to most people um however there are of course these examples where that falls short uh, tribalism i think is a great example historically of this so do you see like what do you see as the connection between moral philosophical work uh, and uh, I, I don't like the word progress here, but again, like I guess progress and like intuitions and coming against up against intuitions or perhaps like leaning into certain ones and discounting others. So that's a it's a very good question. It's a hard question. Um, I think it's actually much harder than the kind of stuff that I've been doing on this particular project because uh, it really gets at very fundamental questions about what morality is and what would count as making progress and how to think mm. about the role of moral theory in the moral life. And uh, I, I want to be very careful to think about, do you sort of be fair to the, to the various parties in this conversation? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I got into really early on when I was sort of pivoting toward ethics was discussed responses and thinking about, you know, the way, um, they're both very unreliable and yet at the same time trying to figure out like what if any is the wisdom of these kinds of responses like what do we mm. do with these the, our most powerful moral responses yeah um, and you know I think I want to simultaneously say you know shut up and multiply and do the valuation based on what the expected utility calculation says. Mm. And then at the same time, I want to say, but look, you know, we've also all done enough moral philosophy to know that, you know, add in infinities and everything breaks. Um, or, you know, like, <laughs> fill, like just fill in all the deep, like all the ways that these things just can like completely collapse. And all of our ideas about, you know, our, our moral frameworks can just um, fall apart because we don't know how to make them fit with the kind of, of world that we appear to be living in. Mm. Um, the transition between like academic philosophy and uh, more normative or more sort of, uh, not necessarily applied because I'd recognize it's a different like category, but um, what uh, I guess non-academic philosophers might see as uh, applied, like actually these like moral intuitions that we go through the world with. Well, so there's, so there's the, also that issue. Oh, okay. That was separate. So okay. I'll, 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 I'll come on that in one second. But I think... I think the, the point that I wanted to make was mm. I, I simultaneously want to be hypercritical of our intuitions and recognize the various ways in which we can go deeply, deeply wrong. And then I also want to recognize that we don't know how to actually develop a moral theory that is remotely satisfying. Mm. Like none of the candidates are 
have any shot, really, at, I think, at, at capturing the truth about morality. That's so interesting. That is not the same intuition. I, I would love for you to expand more on this. I'm so curious. Well, I, I mean, I think we can you, you sort of like look. This is in part because of the destructive nature of philosophy. Philosophy is way, it's way harder to blow things up than to build them uh, in life and in philosophy. And, um, you know, you look at some of the devastating objections against the various moral frameworks that we have available. Like, yeah. look, they're, they're all woefully inadequate. None of them are going to do the things that we want them to do. Mm. They are all vulnerable to critiques that I, I think sort of any reasonable person who is not in the grip of that theory would say, well, yeah, that's bad. I mean, mm. you know, so, something has gone seriously wrong. This theory is, you know, failing at its explanatory aims or is just flatly inconsistent or clashes with such deep intuitions that no one could possibly be um, compelled mm. to accept so it. So even if it whatever. is right, they wouldn't act in line with it even. Yeah, so, yeah. So, well, some, something like that. Or just, you know, maybe it just would never be reasonable to believe a theory like that because mm. um, it would always be more reasonable to believe that you shouldn't torture babies for fun uh, yeah. than <laughs> it would be to believe the theory, you know, or whatever. And what are we supposed to do in the fact that, or in the face of the fact that moral theories are so inadequate? Mm. And if we sort of throw out all the intuitions, there's nothing left, mm. you know? So I, I, we have to live in that tension between simultaneously challenging the intuitions and recognizing some of them as racist and xenophobic and so, like all these other things. Mm. And at the same time, we have to recognize like, oh yeah, and the theories are also really disappointing. And to some degree, we're going to have to rely on these intuitions and figure out how to negotiate. And, and where to cut off. Yeah, that where makes to cut it off. Yeah. Right, and where, where to accept that, um, you know, there's going to be inevitable... Uh, and hopefully reasonable disagreement and, you know, all these other sorts of cases that um, they're going to leave us dissatisfied. We're, they're going to leave us dissatisfied. You know, yeah. We're going to do we're going to do the work of moral philosophy. We're going to do the work of being self-critical and we're going to come to an intellectual spot that we're going to look at and say, well, this is not actually good enough. Mm. You know, I think like that's that's the experience of doing doing philosophy for a long time, at least for me, mm. is sort of perpetually being dissatisfied by what we have as our, as our best options. Mm. And uh, then you still have to act in the face of that and not be mm. too you know, hung up and paralyzed by the fact that we were unsure how to tell any sort of systematic, coherent story mm. about our lives. Yeah, and about like arguably one of the most important questions, which is like the pursuing that, that, that good. Yeah, you know, and I think that's one of the, the really interesting things to to hear from your perspective on is like, given the academic background and the the things you've been working on with the Moral Weights Project, I would not have anticipated that answer. I like I really would have anticipated a completely different, like more sort of like much more optimistic about not just even optimistic, but just more so just uh, very like much less I guess uh, skeptical of the ability to come to a clear and cohesive like moral worldview, right? Because oh. it makes it more noble. Like the work you're doing, it makes it even more interesting to me that you go, hey, this still isn't perfect, but it's a much better shot at trying to like live a good moral life, even though we're still, like the jury's still kind of out on what that like really perfectly means, right? Um, because I think there's a tendency within certain uh, uh, areas of academia, especially to like have folks who 
are definitely adherent to one moral system, really, really proliferate, right? Uh, And that, I think, oftentimes, I've seen it, at least in my own courses uh, at school, like, uh, kill some of the nuance in discussion, right, in those discussion boards. And it's tricky because sometimes it's because of moral intuitions people have, and other times it's because, like, uh, students will anticipate that their professor has certain, like, leanings or certain uh, sort of uh, ideological underpinnings and will therefore kind of adopt or sort of, like, uh, phrase the things they're saying to fit that, right? Um, and oftentimes it leads to a really tricky kind of dynamic intellectually. Uh, so it's like, nonetheless, it's like super interesting to me that given this sort of lack of, um, I, I, I guess like, uh, like, like strong, strong belief that like utilitarianism or consequentialism, for example, uh, is, uh, would you consider it like, it's, it's not like the best option we have. You kind of see it as like uh coinciding in like potential value with like virtue ethics or deontology or do you see like consequentialism still as like the best shot we have at doing the right thing like how do you how do you kind of make sense between the different ones or maybe you see virtue ethics and deontology as just other forms of consequentialism but so i just don't worry very much about these (laughs) questions i mean i mean that's awesome so i can i can i can weigh in to some degree but i mean you know honestly i think this is not the right way of approaching uh, questions about moral uncertainty and mm. how to handle the, the ultimately what it boils down to moral decision making. Um, you know, I have a very pragmatic take. You know, I think, okay, these are tools. Um, it might just turn out that if you want to think in terms of, you know, global trade offs, which is what we want to do in EA, yeah. then maybe no other framework besides utilitarianism is going to allow us to do that. Like maybe Mm. there just is not going to be a decision procedure that the virtue ethicist will recommend. Yeah. Maybe the Kantian just has nothing to hand to do. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the cost benefit like, analysis. Have good intentions. Right. I don't want to be critical of the Kantian. Like, uh, you know, I want to say something like, well, the, the kind of problem that, EAs have chosen to focus on maybe mm. the, the kind of problem where the only available tool is the one that the utilitarian provides. And that makes sense, right? And, yeah. and if that's the case, then we got to go as far as we can in developing this framework. Mm. Um, but I don't want to say that, uh, for instance, it's the only tool EAs need. Yeah. I don't want to say that it's the only framework that is uh, the only kind of problem that EA should be focused on are ones that require this particular tool. Um, and I don't want to say that, I don't want to offer some kind of um, sort of happy harmony story where you say, well, like, you know, utilitarianism clearly has the corner of the truth. That's that's the one true tool. <laughs> and all the other tools are just approximating utilitarianism in certain kinds of environments. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not that sympathetic to that either. I'm much more inclined to have a pluralistic kind of approach and say, mm. we have lots of moral reasons. Um, theories are more and less useful at systematizing and allowing us to think clearly and coherently about classes of those reasons. Mm. And depending on the kinds of situations that we find ourselves in and the kinds of roles that we have and lots of other factors, um, different theories are going to be more or less useful in helping us act well in mm-hmm. that context. And so I suppose that if we have to sort of pigeonhole the view, it ends up as some kind of moral particularism um, that sort of 
amenable to using theories, but without um, being without thinking that they represent uh, explanatory stories about what mm. makes certain moral claims true or false. Mm. So it's not really it's not a moral like realist. No, it could be or realist. It? It I just, mean, it it's, just, it's it's uncertain. It's, a, yeah, it's okay. a rejection of systematicity. Mm. Okay, that's what yeah. it is. I like that. That's a that's a really that that's a really interesting. Yeah, I love this. This is super interesting. So tell me more um, about how you guys are determining the specific weights for the Moral Weights Project. Yeah, good. Yeah, because I, are you guys collaborating with scientists? Uh, yeah, so it's a big team. What times? It's been sixteen people uh, wow. working on it for eighteen months. Um, you know, from entomologists, animal welfare scientists, comparative cognition folks. You know, certain tax specialists um, and philosophers, economists. Um, so it's been a wide range of people. And essentially the approach is start with your theory of welfare, which for us was hedonism, right? Um, and then given that theory of welfare, think about what the determinants of welfare are. So if, if hedonism is true, then what's good and bad are positively and negatively valent states, right? mm-hmm. certain kinds of experiential states. So now we've got our theory about the determinants of welfare, and then we think, okay, can we measure difference in the ability to realize valent states directly? The short answer is no, we cannot. We have no idea how to measure that directly. Nobody does. Um, mm. So all you can do is then think about, well, what would be proxies for variation? Mm. right? So what kinds of factors could explain why uh, different kinds of animals can realize more intense pleasures or more intense pains. Mm. So to answer that, what you do is you think, well, like what are valent states for? Like why do we have them? Mm. Why do organisms produce this particular kind of experience? And there are a few common theories. Um, you know, basically. They serve a certain motivational role in learning, that they represent a certain kind of information, um, you know, that they allow for there to be a common currency in decision making, right? So different kinds of theories that people offer for uh, what valent states are for. And then what you do is you say, okay, well, like, if those are the theories, let's think about what would empirical proxies be. So. Take the representational theory, which I'm not saying is true. We don't know which of these theories is true. There yeah. are objections to all of them. But like, just take the theory and then think, okay, if you know, ultimately um, this is about representation of damage to the body, uh, if that's what a valent state is for, or you know, a pain state is for, mm-hmm. versus representing some positive you know, fitness re- relevant information um, in the case of a pleasure, but if that's what a pain is for, then think about, well, okay, what differences in representational capacities um, might there be? And what would be proxies for differences in those representational capacities? So maybe it's going to turn out that various indicators of cognitive sophistication, um, insofar as those are indicators of representational sophistication, so like being able to entertain more complex thoughts, being able mm. to... Uh, have a having a larger working memory, um, you know, engaging with a wider range of environments, um, uh, having engaged in social behaviors versus 
solitary organisms who might have different cognitive demands placed on them by sociality, etc. Mm. So then the thought is, well, look, all of those things might be proxies, mm-hmm. so put them on the long list. And then you go on to the next theory of valence, and you do the same thing, and the next theory of valence, and do the same thing. And eventually you get this long, we ended up with um, a bit over 100 proxies. And then we just started doing these massive literature reviews. So we spent hundreds and hundreds of hours seeing what the literature says about these traits um, and then collected all the data into um, an enormous table and uh, and then figured out, okay, well, now that we've got this data, you have to aggregate, mm-hmm. right? And of course, nobody knows how to aggregate either because that's really hard. And so what we did was just come up with as many different ways that we could think of to aggregate and then run a Monte Carlo simulation across all of them to see what it spit out. So we, so we, you know, the, the short version of this is start with a theory of welfare, figure out what makes things go well and badly for an individual organism based on the theory of welfare. Mm. Think about what would be proxies for variation in the ability to realize the determinants of welfare. Go out to the literature, figure out what's there, then uh, figure out how to aggregate. We wanted to not assume any more than was absolutely necessary. So we just allowed for all the possibilities that we could identify to be there. And then we essentially aggregated across those. Mm. And then that spits out the numbers. For that that second to last step there of uh, not being like not necessarily just going with with one of the potential um, perspectives or like uh, uh, measurements of, of potential welfare, uh, how did you guys determine between like actual viable options for that and yeah, things that sure. were just like half baked like weird like articles you found published in like some random like yeah. well there's yeah so we weren't. We weren't borrowing any models from other people to do this aggregation. Because... Oh, sorry, not the aggregation. Sorry, the earlier, much earlier step. I meant, so I didn't mean. Uh, I meant the the second step, not the second to last step. My, my mistake. Oh, oh, oh yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. The, um, when you guys oh, were the picking, theories of valence. Yeah, the the theory. Yeah, the, the valence state ones. I see. Well, in both cases, um, essentially, we let what the sort of you know, the range of uh, seemingly reasonable scholarly disagreement was. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there was nothing really else to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, likewise, so that's, that's true with respect to the theories of valence. It's also true with respect to aggregation, where you think, well, look, you know, here, here are the different ways you could think about uh, the relationship between these proxies and an overall score. You could think, you know, there are versions of hedonism that... Um, classify some pleasures as higher and lower mm-hmm. you know there are um, people who have proposed views on which um, you know cognitive sophistication is actually inversely related uh, to the things that we care about because maybe it turns out that simpler organisms just need more powerful signals to get them to behave in the right way and mm-hmm. part of what cognitive sophistication does is allow you to have weaker uh, pain states so I mean you know there are all these different theoretical positions out there mm-hmm. and we just built a model for each one to sort of represent okay well this is a way you could interpret what's going on here and if we can't rule it out then we're going to give it you know a place in the overall um process and you know 
we did this very quickly. This was an 18 month project, which is not nothing. And it was a lot of people, but still we could have spent forever on this. I mean, a huge mm. amount of time. And if we had more time, then one of the things we would do was make it so that you could go in and weight the models yourself, right? And say like, oh, well, I just don't, I reject this particular assumption or like, I don't think neuron counts matter at all. Or I don't think that, you know, whatever it is <laughs> yeah. and then see what spits out. And it would be nice to have a tool that allows users to explore that way. Yeah. But you know, uh, there are only so many hours in the day and absolutely <laughs> you, yeah. you could do, but yes, that I, that is exactly the way we were thinking about it was attempting to accommodate what we took to be the sort of range of reasonable positions in mm. the conversation. Uh, and then the the sort the starting point you guys initially jumped off of from was uh, the, the hedonism, right? Like taking hedonism right. as sort of right. the metric. Was was that something that was contested, or was that something that was thought about, or potentially like looked at alternatives for? So we did do some research on this question mm. of well, to what degree do we think our results are dependent on the hedonism? Like oh, how okay. like how far how much would dropping that assumption and taking on a different theory of well-being, like mm. suppose we were desire satisfaction theorists or objectivist theorists or whatever, mm. um, would that get us a very different result? And I mean, the upshot of that paper is we think it makes some difference, but not that much. Mm. Um, like probably not more than an order of magnitude, and I actually think way less. Um, so and, and, and in one sense, that shouldn't be that wild, because if you think Look, it's implausible that um, hedonic states, hedonic goods and bads, are mm. all of welfare. Yeah. You, someone might think that. But there's still going to be a lot of welfare yeah. on, a, on yeah. any view that you have, right? So like, yeah. if your theory of welfare says you can be tortured and your welfare level has not dropped at all, mm -hmm. something's gone wrong. Like, yeah. That's the wrong theory of welfare, right? <laughs> yeah. And not only has your welfare dropped, it's dropped a lot. Yeah, right? even, the, yeah, even right. the Stoics at that point are like, listen, don't read that much into that, it. Yeah. That's right, that's right. So, so like once, once you recognize that, then you realize like, oh, so there are some constraints on how well off and badly off you can be relative to these peak and valley hedonic states. Mm. And so you can set some upper bounds and lower bounds. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it matters. I think it matters less than people might think. Yeah, that, that's quite interesting to hear about. Yeah. Uh, and then beyond the uh, sort of uh, focus of the you know, methodology behind the Moral Weights Project, which has been like super interesting to hear about uh, so far, uh, are there any specific additional results um i know you you talked about some of the specifics of uh the uh point was it point three three for uh was it chickens yeah. or was it yeah so that result specifically i'd like to hear your thoughts on because that yeah, sure. must weigh on you man like that like oh, yeah, that yeah, weighs yeah, yeah. on on me like yeah. factory farming even whereas like before coming uh right. or before uh reading uh and learning a little bit about the moral weights project like my estimation of chicken welfare, of course, uh, consideration for my moral circle was like a lot lower. And even then I was like, I feel terrible. Like, sure, uh, sure. Oh my. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. how has yeah. that like affected your kind of outlook and has it like, uh, frankly, I feel like it, it would make sense of it. Like it made you a bit more pessimistic or just like sad sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> sure. sure. I mean, th that's a good question. Uh, it's a hard question. I mean, so uh, there are a few things to say. One is I do want to stress that the right way to think about these numbers is mm. as, well, in my view, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe, maybe this is not the correct way of thinking about them, but it's the way I think you ought to think about them, is as 
the best placeholders we have conditional on the assumptions that went into the project. Mm. So um, maybe you want to say, well, I'm not a hedonist or, you know, I have some other methodology that I'm going to use to generate these numbers. Fine. But I think what, what we were trying to offer was the right starting point. Mm. Like what should you, where should you begin your inquiry? Mm. And I think the answer to that question is don't begin with something like, I consulted my intuitions about how much I cared about chickens. Begin with, okay, what do we know about chickens? Um, what would what would be a reasonable way of trying to go from what we know about chickens to a moral valuation, given what we take to be a plausible way of thinking about welfare? So that's like that's the the high level take. I fully anticipate these numbers will change if we keep doing this work. Like we learn more about chickens. We learn more about octopuses. We learn more about black soldier flies. We're going to change the way we think about them. Um, the more we learn about valence states, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. You know, this will evolve. These are not things that we should put too much stock in, but it's all relative in the sense that, you know, you should have put even less stock in your intuitions. So yeah, all yeah. I'm trying to do is get above intuitions that we should clearly ignore, mm. which is not a very high bar. Yeah. Um, like, so, so that's the level of confidence I think is appropriate, right? Mm. Best placeholders, conditional on the moral assumptions. So that's, that's all I want to claim for these numbers. Yeah. But then the next thing to say is, um, look, factory farming is a moral catastrophe. I believe that before I did this project. I, I don't think my views about that were really influenced at all. Um, you know, if anything, I think in the case of chickens and pigs, these were reductions for me. I was much more inclined to sort of a simple equality view. Mm. Um, but again, as a default, right, as a as a starting point, not because I thought like, oh, the arguments decisively, you know, commit us to that view, yeah. right? But I just thought, oh, well, I should probably assume that their pain is as intense as my own mm. as a kind of moral precaution. Um, so I don't think it's been a huge update for me one way or another on that, but I am a very unusual person with whom to have this conversation because of course I've been writing about factory farming for a long time and I've been like staring it in the face as a, like as an academic for a while. Mm. Um, so of course I've had strong views about this to begin with. Um, you know, I have when I have shared some of these, results with others uh, I think it has been a bigger update for them as they were inclined toward a much much more aggressive discount rate for non-human animals mm. um, but I didn't think that was justified to begin with yeah H have you felt more uh, I guess uh, again I, I don't know why I keep like returning to the word like uh, pessimistic or optimistic but uh, has the news from like the the UK with additional um, I, I think that the nation now like uh, recognizes the sentience of sure is it octopi and then there, there's two other animals uh, or De uh, decapod crustaceans yeah yeah so decapod. Jonathan Birch's lab was leading that work mm. and um, you know that that those are exciting developments yeah you know, they're made possible um, by a really great team of people who've been, you know, sort of leading the way mm. uh, on those kinds of um, really provocative regulatory reforms, and mm. the UK is in a 
in some ways in a wonderful position because it has a sentience bill. Like it has this written in in a way that allows for this kind of argumentation to go forward. Mm. You couldn't straightforwardly do that with the Animal Welfare Act in the U.S. Uh, it's just not amenable to that kind of alteration. Um, so yeah, on, on some level, I am excited about those things. Uh, mm. You know, Lewis Bollard sent out a wonderful newsletter uh, at the end of last year talking about the last decade of wins for yeah. animal advocates. And, you know, I was thinking about what my views were like 10 years ago. And yeah, I was a, I wouldn't have predicted any of those things would have taken place. You know, mm. I, I, was, I was very, very pessimistic and I was wrong. Um, and I'm grateful to Lewis for systematically pointing out, not that he was doing it for me, but I mean, for, for pointing out all the ways that I was wrong. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I I think these wins are fragile. Um, and it's easy to overlook the fact that they aren't, they aren't global wins. Mm -hmm. They are wins in a very narrow range of countries. And honestly, you know, Western factory farming just doesn't matter anymore. Um, you know, all the action is in the development of factory farming in uh, the global south. When, when you say all the action, uh, action for large impact and intervention, is that because in part of the sort of crystallization of different like norms and stuff, as well as just like corporations, once they get a lot of money and are able to like, it, you know, it's harder to those put are the a new markets. Those yeah. are the new markets. Yeah. So this is where all the growth is going to be. Exactly. And it's where the most important work needs to be done. Mm. Like, yeah, you can move, you can make marginal changes, you know, in the U.S. You can make marginal changes uh, in the U.K. Yes, there has been progress, et cetera, et cetera. But, mm. you know, like, we're a long way from getting to vegan countries. Um, and, you know, what we're probably going to do is mostly make moderate improvements in this context. Mm. But, you know, we're about to see a huge number of people who have been, um, you know, financially disenfranchised mm. come into wealth as the global economy grows. Mm -hmm. And all predictions are that they will want to eat more meat. And that meat will be produced by factory farms that are exported from Western countries. And many of those countries are not going to have um, strong legal protections for animals. Mm -hmm. And I would fully predict that those environments will be very bad. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want to be, I want to recognize the successes, but I also don't want to make, I don't want to ever come to think um, these wins mean that things are not actually getting much, much worse. Yeah. Because I think they are getting much, much worse for many, many more animals. Hmm. And we're now seeing the rise of things that, um, where the numbers are just astronomical. So the rise of insect farming in particular yeah. is, you know, the number of chickens dwarfs the number of pigs, the number of shrimp dwarfs the number of <laughs> chickens, the number of black soldier flies makes all of it just seem like a rounding error. Like, yeah. So, and, and that's the kind of thing where, uh, of course, lots of people understandably might think like we've got, you know, we're, we've now, we've ridden the train all the way to crazy town mm. and something has gone desperately wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're even having the conversation, but I, 
you know, the more I learn about insects, the more I think, yeah, I was wrong about them too. Please expand on that because that's one of the things I was the most curious of asking. It was that and hunting were the two like, oh, big, sure. you know, questions. Because sure. I think when it comes to people jumping in the discussion of uh, animal welfare, uh, and like veganism and um, being more conscientious about like uh, ethical impacts of just like our day-to-day like things. Uh, the insect consideration argument is one that initially, I'm talking like not that long ago, probably six or seven months ago, we had an EA Cornell meeting and it was the subject of conversation sure. because the week before I'd been talking about how interesting insect farming was as a way to replace the you know very climate sure. change yeah. hazardous you know, uh, it was an existential yeah. risk argument, basically, yeah. right? Yeah. No consideration for the flies. So right. this is something I'm directly responsible, like not responsible of, but, um, right. you know, uh, I can be indicted for, you know? Yeah. Uh, so please give me an argument on that, how it's like changed and stuff and, and how you kind of initially approached and all that fun stuff. Well, I mean, I think I rather uncritically, mm. um, you know, went in with the kind of, you know, they are little robots view. Yeah. And... It's not that I think that view is untenable. I mean, you know, there. I don't think you know my credence in black soldier flies, in particular, being sentient, is suddenly you know jumped up to point eight or something like that. But you know, there are there are important sets of considerations, and and you know, this isn't. There's really great work on this by a lot of people, um, and it's worth reading that work. This stuff is complicated. Mm. You know, it's we don't want to be. Um, you know, we don't want to be flippant about it because even assigning a very low credence, if you're open to expected utility maximization, then you get pretty radical results right yeah. from the get-go. But, you know, um, there are a few things to say, you know, and maybe one way of getting at it is by contrasting it with the case of AI. Hmm. So, you know, in the case of AI, we get these very impressive capabilities. And I think people are going to be ready to attribute sentience to AIs pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah. And of course, it's already happened to some degree. People yeah. have had these conversations. Well, I mean, we're hardwired to recognize sure. consciousness and other exactly. things, right? But, you know, the mechanisms by which that behavior is being generated, like, they're quite different than the mechanisms that appear to generate that behavior in humans. And we know that at some point, sentience arose in critters built out of the stuff we're built out of running programs like the ones we run. And so unlike the AI case, you can say, well, look, we, we know this emerges in systems like this. Mm. And so then the question is just how far back, right? Yeah. Um, you know, when does this emerge? And, you know, of course, unconscious information processing is very powerful. Mm. Humans appear to have quite sophisticated behaviors via un, you know, unconscious information processing. So we don't want to downplay that at all. But we also want to recognize that like, clearly we do some things consciously. Yeah. So the mere fact that it can be done unconsciously doesn't mean that it isn't ever done consciously. Mm. Um, and you know, lots of the basic kinds of mechanisms that we would want to appeal to as, well, these are the fundamental ones. This is what, you know, those appear to be old, right? I mean, no septic system is very old system, right? There's a reason why fruit flies are useful as a pain model. There's a reason mm. why people could study depression in flies and use them as a depression model. Well, it's because the, the basic uh, cognitive building blocks appear to be there. And you look at that and you think, well, yeah, I mean, sure. 
we don't necessarily have the same, um, you know, kind of brain that we have in uh, in mammals. We don't have, hmm. um, you know, uh, prefrontal cortex. We don't have all these structures, but we also know that lots of functions can be realized by homologous structures and other kinds of organisms, right? Blah, 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 blah. And so you, you start running through all these different sorts of considerations and you look at some of the very impressive behaviors and, you know, this wonderful recent study came out about bumblebees playing with, you know, marbles. I don't know if you saw that. I did not but, see that. That's but, you awesome. know, like you see these things and you think, well, you know, these are pretty sophisticated capacities. Um, it's striking which systems appear to be there. Mm. We know that consciousness emerged at some point. Mm. Um, you know, now your ability to sort of quickly rule them out gets a mm. whole lot less, you know, it's, it's, it's just not as easy. And yeah. so then you start doing like, well, okay, what, what credence should I assign? Mm. I mean, I would think at least 10%, you know? But suppose mm. you don't think that. Suppose you think it's just 1%. 1% is enough to get really interesting arguments going, you know? Is that credence of uh, the amount of sentience? Of, of sentience. Of sentience. Okay. Gotcha. Right? And so then you have an independent question about, you know, how much welfare the insect can realize relative to a human. But of course, like mm. if you're a hedonist and you've posited sentience, then you've, you know that they're welfare subjects at that point. And mm. then um, it's just a question of, what that capacity is. So the numbers that we gave are actually all sentience adjusted. There, mm. so we we separately did probability of sentience estimates, and so we discounted our what what we call them welfare range estimates because we're focused on synchronic welfare realization, how much welfare you could realize at a time. Mm. So we discounted that estimate by probability of sentience. Interesting. Yeah, because I, the. And like you know, that goes into this whole uh, argument of the, the sort of pain and, and and pleasure model of it being you know, and in one way, information just working through the neuroanatomy uh, and giving information to a system that's like making in some way decisions about the environment, which on a very root level is like uh, we see like cells reacting to the environment, sure, right? Sure, and that sure. doesn't denote that doesn't necessarily mean that like you should give uh, you know a, a right. cell like uh, ethical prioritization because obviously right. it's the conscious factor, it's the ability to experience those things that we actually are concerned about, right. um, and that has always been something that is I think kind of hidden in discussions of, of uh, thinking about morality and making the right decisions and stuff. It's like it's not just the brain it's it's specifically what's riding on the brain and perhaps produced by the brain sure. uh, which is that right. conscious experience right? right so like the that discounting of like you know uncertainty around like you know what level of credence you're you know attributing to likelihood of uh in this it's the black soldier fly you said right of like that um species being you know conscious it's a really interesting kind of like a adjustment within the model yeah uh, i'm super excited that like you, you brought up explicitly uh and then as for the level of like certainty around like uh, of uh, sort of the, the range of likelihood that a cow or a pig is conscious, is it almost 100? Like what's the discount there? Because I would like... Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it's a small discount, right? So I mean, I, yeah. think, I think we have estimate... I think we do have, you know, pigs at 0.9 or something like that. Mm. Or just, or thereabouts in that ballpark. Yeah. Um, you know, yes, I would be very surprised. I'd be shocked. You know, yeah. so, so yes... Those credences are very high, but you know when you get down to the silkworms, of mm -hmm. course the credences are really low, and those do make a big difference to the overall assessment. Yeah, massive, and it seems like it's of such a massive ethical like potential impact, right? That seems like oh, a right. lot of the you know because it's like I, what, what, there's 
I can't remember if it's roughly as much biomass on Earth as ants as it is humans, or it's like multiple times. It's just like seeing the sort of uh, biomass like comparisons of like animals compared to humans compared to like uh, fungi to like you know all this sort of measurements. It's insane how much life is out there. Oh yeah. So the ants alone were just recently estimated, I think, five quintillion. Oh my gosh. Alive at any given time. <laughs> so I mean, you know, right. So then, you, and you think that's just the ants, right? So then yeah, you think, like, just we're ants. ignoring all the other terrestrial arthropods. Um, <laughs> and we haven't even thought about aquatic organisms. Yeah, yeah. So Which it, are so numerous in some places where there's the sonar mapping that thought that the water was a lot more shallow than it actually was. And they're right. like, this doesn't seem right. Literally just fish moving up and down. Yeah, that's right. It's insane. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So on those, once you start thinking in terms of, and I, I mean, look, this is a, this is, I think, you know, our intuitions about morality are just not made to incorporate numbers like this. Yeah. And the variety of life. Yeah. And so, of course, it just sort of breaks our thinking about about what we ought to do. Which means we have to be excited about having those intu- uh, intuitions like challenged, right? To some degree. Yeah. Um, I and agree. of course, like there's, uh, as we talked earlier, there's there are some intuitions that we need to. I mean, we're, right now, we're still as a species. Uh, trying to you know figure out what is best and, and what is not. There's of course a lot of low hanging fruit when it comes to intuitions, sure. you know. Sure. Uh, and yeah, so it seems like one response that seems like overall like a, a potentially like very you know ethical approach to have is like oh that intuition seems wrong. like you know given this information, this intuition seems wrong, and that's actually something that I should lean into and be interested yeah, yeah, yeah. in instead right. of this sort of. Uh, like reaction that I certainly recognize myself all the time is this like, oh, this intuition seems wrong. And like, that makes me feel uncomfortable. I want to lean out. It's like, yeah, no, yeah. actually that is a good thing. That's, that, yeah. that's valuable yeah. information. Yeah. Uh, if what you, you know, pride your, your well-being off of in some sort of more cerebral way is doing good. Right. Uh, and that just seems like something that is not as talked about as, as much as I feel like it should be. Um, is that like updating as a good thing that intuition as a you know updating as a good thing um but yeah how how has it affected your own kind of relationship with your own like moral intuitions i it seems like something you've already been doing the animal work yeah doing the animal work specifically i mean because i know you've been doing it for so long that it Mm. uh has it like what intuitions do you still feel like are have like stood up against that um, like, like, what intuitions still inform your decision making in a way that uh, you are not necessarily, you know, absolutely certain in, but have like held up to that test of time? Yeah, I mean, so that's an extremely tough question. But yeah, I just sure, under- sure, sure. Um, that is a very good question. I don't know that I have a very satisfying response. My my moral views have shifted a lot in the last 20 years and Mm. so um i'm trying to think about what has been stable i think um certainly an anti-elitism intuition has remained stable where uh if your view implies that you know like grandma's a terrible person then your view is probably wrong. Like on on, there should be like some attempt to accommodate um, the yeah the like the ordinary human life as mm. somehow not um, globally failing. 
Um, yeah. And then the, like the question is sort of how you make sense of that and, mm. you know, what you, so I think that, that kind of like attempt to sort of be very clearly critical of, uh, people from the perspective of theories, um, I've always been uncomfortable with that and have resisted, even though, of course, my own views imply that many people are doing very terrible things. Yeah. So I'm not, I don't want to you know, downplay that either. But mm-hmm. I think that that impulse has certainly stayed. Um, something else that has probably stayed has been a kind of um, a, like a very deep sense of tragedy um, where mm-hmm. I'm just strongly inclined to think that. We won't end up with a moral view on which it's possible to uh, to to have your hands clean, and that probably there are going to be impossible choices that we face where everything we do is wrong. Yeah. Um, and and not you know not just bad. Lots of people will concede that, but you know actually wrong. Mm. Many people do not like the idea of of there being tragic dilemmas like that. But I think I'm very sympathetic to that kind of view. Um, mm. And, yeah, I'm not sure what else. Those might... Uh, the list might be short. That is... A, <laughs> like, I... Yeah, that I mean, especially the the, the first one is, uh, like, really, really fascinating to me. That, that intuition around... Um, you, you said sort of this, like, uh, anti-elitist kind of uh, moral view of, like, uh, a good test for moral systems being I'm just making sure I'm, yeah, like, yeah, I am yeah, yeah. understanding correctly uh, a good test of moral systems is hey does this frame like ev- most of everyone <laughs> as like abhorrent you know right, right. Uh, and if it does eh, it seems like it probably won't you know not even just stick but probably just seems inaccurate or wrong some way uh, because it definitely does come up against this in a really challenging way that I like am struggling to wrap my head around right now um, up against this like we are yeah doing a lot of terrible things right, right, if right, like you know right. if, if black soldier flies are yeah, yeah, yeah. worth yeah, moral yeah, yeah, consideration yeah. which i think i mean there is a, a strong case for like holy crap <laughs> you know every time we build a road and we right. demolish some trees with like right. thousands of mil- or like millions right. of ants or whatever that that itself is uh, horrendous right yeah. so i mean notice yeah. that i think my own, what i'm say, saying are the things that have been preserved are in direct tension yeah right i mean the, but a creative like potentially creatively benefit well, maybe right? one or, hopes, or not, but yeah. but I think what's going on there, there are very deep tensions between those ideas. Most people who yeah. want to give up on tragic dilemmas do that in part because they want to preserve the idea that people are not acting wrongly. Yeah, um, and I'm wanting to say no, no, no. Uh, I, I want to hang on to something about like the decency of uh, of human action, um, and then I also want to hang on to this very tragic view about moral obligation. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a way of squaring those. Um, they both seem to me to get at something very important about the moral life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I do not have any bandwidth to think about how to, how to fit them together. But, but I am interested at some point in trying and to fit them there, together. There, I think, are really interesting similarities here uh, towards um, different religious practices that have, like, hold all life as extremely sacred, right? Um, even down to insects. Uh, like, in that sort of... Like, like this as a secular line of uh, moral thought leading to that similar conclusion is really, really interesting to me. Mm. Uh, this, this sense that, that all life in, in some degree is, is sacred uh, because if, you know, insofar as like 
we are not quite sure if it is conscious and like might want to just like lean on the eh, we don't know right now or like we're figuring that out still we have some unknowns let's just lean on the side of like being a little oh, safe you know yeah. yeah that sort of morality of precaution there uh and at the same time makes it really hard to uh, look at sort of more traditional consequentialism, right? Um, in the sense of like, uh, is it, uh, I can't remember if it's Mill or Bentham that has like the the uh, pig-like uh, hedonism like right, argument, right? right. Uh, whereas like, uh, you know, like humans have ability because of, in, you know, increased like uh, complexity to experience like higher goods, right? right? So better to be Socrates to satisfy than a pig satisfied. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like I, how does that line of argument fit into this general animal welfare uh, uh, perspective you have? Yeah, so I mean, we... Uh, we have a model that's based yeah. on that higher pleasure idea. Um, you know, that's what I was referring to earlier. And uh, that is a certain thing that we wanted to accommodate because, of course, people in the, in the hedonist tradition have taken that view seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think, so now we're sort of changing topics from some of these other things that we've been discussing yeah. and shifting yeah. this, this new one. And I think my main thing to say about that is, you know, many people have the view that the kinds of goods that are distinctive of human life um, are not either they're not directly comparable with uh, sort of simple pleasures you know like the pleasure of a nice piece of candy or something mm-hmm. um, or that they're just orders of magnitude more important and better mm. so you know the the good of developing a deep friendship with a peer um, is you know, thousands of times better than the good of, you know, enjoying a, a nice meal or something like that. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think there might be s- ways in which I can sort of be sympathetic to that view and ways I can sort of think myself into that, you know, line of thought. Mm. I'm just going to like this. Yeah. Like, Go on, please. But ultimately, I think my view is something like, oh, this is just like a deep, pro-human bias that's very, very hard to justify. In fact, what we're learning is, oh, humans really like the human way of life. Um, but it's not, it's not a particularly interesting argument for those ways of life being more valuable than animals' ways of life. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, there's a wonderful passage from Henry Benson about uh, animals being other nations. And I think that captures what I think is probably the most important thing to keep in mind when we're thinking about animals is just, Mm. you know, we're looking at sort of entirely different ways of being in the world. Mm. And, you know, of course, of course, uh, what's valuable about those distinctive ways of being is going to be obscure to us. It's going to be hard for us to appreciate. Um, you know, we're going to be, we often define ourselves in many ways as not animals, you know, like, yeah. you know, um, you know, just think about things your parents may have said to you when you were growing up, like, we don't live in a barn, you know, like, yeah. I mean, you're like <laughs> it's explicitly trying to sort of draw the boundaries of the human in a way that excludes animals. Yeah. Um, and with so, the exception of Aristotle, of course, with the right, right. <laughs> plucked but, chicken. But, but what's the upshot of that? What's, you know, one of the upshots is that we're ill-equipped to appreciate what's distinctively valuable about 
animals' lives, and mm. we're strongly inclined to, I think, overstate the value of the things in our own lives. And uh, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be dismissive uh, of human existence, but I do suspect that uh, we are a bit too in love with ourselves and we're just missing what's distinctively important about um, other ways of being sentient on this planet. Mm. So does it, how does that track when it comes to these like broader intuitions? Because that, that seems directly uh, sort of in, in line with this like view of, of intuitions being something that we should like question or doubt. Because like we do have this as oh, sure, very sure, sure. human, like this very human sense of like, well, we're human when we listen to like, Beethoven or like Juice World or something and get a certain kick from it. That feels like experiencing, you know, uh, something that feels more enriching, even if it's not directly just hedonistically pleasurable, right? Uh, and something I'm very curious about and a large aspect of conversations I have on Point for Stocks and write and think about is uh, in terms of, of existential meaning or existential purpose, right? And that seems like an aspect of the human experience that I don't. I don't know and also have an intuition that I don't think animals uh, sure. have a similar experience with, right? Because we're still, we still are just, you know, striving to understand what it means existentially to be a person. So like, I'm just interested in, in hearing your thoughts on how discussions fit into that sort of more existential, you know, philosophical like perspective. Yeah, I mean, um... so I think I'm not as optimistic in mm. as you may be about the distinctive value of you know human meaning creation mm. um, yeah we spin lots of stories about ourselves yeah um, I often think well those are mostly just tools that we use to manipulate and control others <laughs> um, <laughs> um, or, or to deceive ourselves and mm. you know um, get us into head spaces where we are able to navigate particularly taxing aspects of being a mortal creature. Um, so I, you know, I'm as glad for ways of getting through the day as the next guy. Uh, and I don't want to be dismissive. And obviously there's a way of listening to what I'm saying and thinking, well, that guy's just depressed. And, you know, we, we, should, <laughs> we should be careful how much weight we put on what he's having to say. But um, but what you know what I hear in your question is a way of drawing a line between humans and animals and saying, well, look at this special set of abilities that humans has. Doesn't this sort of give us some extra status and value? Yeah. And I and I on the one hand want to say, well, yeah, I have that intuition too, mm-hmm. and I do want to be somewhat deferential to it. I I'm not prepared when we're thinking about concrete trade-offs mm-hmm. to just say, well, flip a coin when you're looking at, you know, a thousand black soldier flies versus a human. Um, but at the same time, I want to be as humble as I possibly can about the justification for that or as honest as I can be about my inability to justify it. Mm-hmm. You know, it might just turn out that at some point I'm just more of a speciesist than I think I am. Mm-hmm. But I would like to then call it speciesism mm-hmm. and not pretend that I have some nice narrative about how these capacities make me matter more. 
Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And that to me is a very sharp line that I, you know, I, I really want to distinguish those things. I understand yeah. for most people, of course, they don't, they think that they really are giving an adequate story about the value. Yeah. Um, and so they don't feel this pressure, but I want to say, mm-hmm. well, I don't find it a very satisfying story. Doesn't mean I disagree with you about the particular trade-off to make, mm-hmm. but I also want to sort of own and, and, be uncomfortable with the fact that I'm willing to always make that trade-off. Yeah. Which I think yeah. is the right thing also to say in human cases, by the way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if I had the choice between helping my son, you know, or 10 other people, I am probably helping my son. Yeah. And it's not because I think I have some great argument that shows that my ton- son is 10 times more valuable or that the strengths of my duties to my son are 10 times stronger than the strengths of my duties to these other individuals. It's, I mean, I don't have that story. Yeah. But I would just do it. And this is a case where I think, oh, it's important for me to say, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. It's what I would do, mm-hmm. but it's not because I think I've got a moral argument for it necessarily. Yeah. And this is just the situation we often face where what we are convinced we would do may or may not be what we're convinced is best. It may or may not be what we can justify and best to be clear about that. Yeah. Rather than suggest otherwise. Yeah, being being confident in one's, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, practicing differentiating between the, the like here's a moral belief or moral thing I do or strive to do uh, for like what seem to be better reasons than just eh I feel that way and the things that we do because of that eh we feel that way right being very clear about that because it seems historically right like many of the moral failures of, of like our ancestors have been predicated off of people not making that distinction very clearly, right? So in terms of trying to take what we can, we can learn from looking back, uh, like, you know, the history of ethics, and trying to apply it to our situation now today, it seems like that distinction is something that's critical, right? Because when you recognize that, oh, this is something that, you know, is this kind of, uh, perhaps just, like, biological, and oftentimes we hear in terms of, like, you know, things we're, like, biologically, like, prone to do or whatever. Um, and that comment doesn't seem, uh, like, that, like, that framing of it doesn't seem completely, like, you know, the fullest picture, right? Um, because then we were just left with like, oh, well, this seems like something people are going to keep doing. It's like, well, what do we do then? And I think what we do then is exactly what we're saying, recognizing it and differentiating between that type of moral situation and one in which we have more sort of a backed up, you know, potentially someone we can put like gloves on and like get into the intellectual arena and box out. Uh, and like, it is, it is tricky, but it, I think it's really easy to feel like morally Bad, like, like like a moral failure to have to recognize things that's like okay well I like treat my like mom and like best friends with more moral consideration they're tighter in my moral circle um, and in my opinion more closely like uh, like the differentiation between me and them is like much thinner right? sure sure um, so it seems like that is like something that sometimes will weigh on me as someone who's interested in, deeply interested in like doing good yeah uh, because I'm like, oh well, like I don't really have good justifications for this, but I still, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still will do it, right? And like, is that? Do you feel like that's something that is a like? Does that connect to sort of the uh, the litmus test we uh, you were talking about earlier of like this uh, uh, sort of uh, issue with moral claims that don't pass the like is Granny an evil person test, right? That like, you know. Yeah. Because if, if our moral theories leave us feeling like we're terrible and are likely to continue to do that, then I feel like it does come up against. And that's the, you know, the sort of direct tension you were talking about earlier. Yeah. But I'm, I'm really curious because I, I wonder if there's another sort of route to, to, to go from that with. 
um, like the we're trying our best sort of attitude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. That's also, yeah, that's a hard question. I mean... Yeah, it took me a second for a Yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's very interesting. I mean, I guess... I guess what I want to say in thinking about... Um, hmm. I think what I want to say is something like, uh, you know, the the situation of trying to sort out what to do with the most important relationships in our lives that, and some of the most profound intuitions that we have about what we should be doing. Mm. Um, yeah, I think some of those things are what give us traction in morality in the first place. Mm. So my view is something like what's going on when we talk about, I'm talking about my son, you're talking about your mother and, um, we are getting at the kinds of things that like give us a grip on why we sort of care about morality in the first place. Yeah. And if it were to turn out that our morality condemned those things and said, yeah, your mom doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, or like <laughs> your son doesn't matter. Then on, on some level that would just be an inhumane morality. Yeah. Like it would be the kind of morality that we sort of couldn't, we couldn't, um, live into yeah. and structure a life around um, and and that's the sense in which I want to have that deferential you know to intuitions idea that we can't totally condemn granny that there's there's some sense in which these kinds of relationships are crucial and you know I also want to be able to say and like oh yeah and you know like grandma's harm footprint is extraordinary and it's terrible you know, yeah, like, and, yeah. and I, so, I mean, yeah. I, I want to say both, but I, I think they're sort of the, the impulses that I'm talking about are coming from different places. Mm. The thing about sort of, um, taking an individual seriously as a moral agent is something about, I think for me, getting at the foundations of morality, getting at the things that I think animate and get us going in the moral project. Mm. Um, and the stuff about, you know, going in for tragedy is about, I think, a different sort of evaluation where I want to be, I don't want to be so com wedded to consistency mm. that I can't see more moral horror than I think we, we should see. Mm. You want to be able to see... I want to see all the bad things. The moral landscape as right. what it actually is. Right. And not... I don't want to. I don't want to be trying to paper over anything or make it seem like it can't be that bad or whatever. Yeah, which I mean, that is certainly a weight to bear, right? And and, and I mean, hence the moral project <laughs> having a sort of a double double meaning potentially. But and but like I think that is something that is, if it was done on mass and also especially as it's done individually, is something that is. I think very like noble and very uh, I, I, that sort of response to moral tragedy uh, is I think an effective response to making a better world and I think it's a barrier when people don't do it to building one that's better like the number of people who just haven't you know, shifted over to right like uh, I don't know, I think uh, Bertrand Russell when he was initially getting really into like nuclear disarmament uh, work uh, with like all these like student activists, right? A lot of the colleagues uh, were like, 
what are you doing? Like you're a, like a professor. You're like a notable like. Yeah, right. Here. And I think there's, you know, there's some arguments you made in favor of like make sure that the philosophy that you live by actually informs decisions you're going by and not just screwing away from it because it's going to interrupt the, you know, pleasure you get or the comfort you get from like your afternoon cup of tea where you could just be thinking about like what Kant or Kierkegaard wrote about or whatever when you could be, you know, out at an activist meetup trying to stop the world from ending from nuclear weapons, right? Like there is this like comfort we have from thinking sometimes and leaning back and I think effective altruism has uh, you know it has a good, does a good job with prioritizing leaning in and saying what is the world actually morally not doing you know the best right and I feel like that's a that's an attitude that historically when we look back people who've had it are typically like revered for you know um, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily something that like I, I'm not like personally striving to be like revered for like ethically or something right um, I'm just like in the driver's seat right now trying to you know figure out the best path to take and I think that path is most certainly not having moral landscape veiled by the stories that don't actually hold up you know and when they do think about it explicitly sure. you know yeah, yeah. yeah. no that that certainly seems right to me I yeah I think there is um, there are very few people who do anything that's particularly important from a moral perspective who don't sort of stare deeply into the abyss yeah. you know and i and i and i that that's just an important aspect of um of prioritizing and mm-hmm. saying yeah there are like there are just lots of ways to live a life mm-hmm. and taking full appreciation of or in as much as you can but full appreciation you know for things about the world that are deeply horrifying mm. is i think a pretty crucial part of being motivated to change and really doing something that's worth doing with a life mm. absolutely well thank you very much for for coming on and this conversation is oh my god this has really tested a lot of intellectual boundaries of my, my own so i really appreciate that uh you bearing it out with me and making sure that uh you were understanding like the, the questions I was asking uh, as clearly as I think at times that I, you know I was understanding my own <laughs> questions, right? And while those were things that you know I had all these questions coming into it prepared, and like in the middle of that, I was realizing, like, oh my gosh, I, there's so many more now that I want to ask. So no, thank you so much. this was great, Coleman. I really appreciate you having me on, and I very much have enjoyed the conversation. This, yeah, this is a great time. Oh my gosh, we'll, we'll have to have you on in the future. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> all right.